0: for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to to Archibus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What is the difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it? Plato recorded Socrates saying that to know the good is to do it. That was a very optimistic view of human nature, perhaps, though not necessarily of the human mind. He reasoned that people did the right thing so long as they knew the right thing to do. The fundamental problem, then, of humanity is ignorance. Well... Christians know better than that. Christians know that the fundamental problem of humanity is sin, which is a disposition of rebelliousness against God. And this sin produces our many sins, our individual acts of rebellion. But maybe we can cut Plato some slack. If we we think about the difference between propositional knowledge and experiential knowledge, you can read in a textbook how to make an incision in the body and then find and remove a ruptured appendix, but most surgeons probably wouldn't be comfortable until they've seen an appendectomy done. Similarly, it's, it's one thing to read a WikiHow article about how to replace a hard drive or change your oil, but it's quite another to experience it on your own computer or on your own lawnmower. That's the difference between propositional knowledge and experiential knowledge. Both are helpful. Sometimes both are essential. And for some tasks, mere understanding is enough for you to be able to accomplish it. But for other tasks, one might not need any understanding of what's going on or why. But on experience alone, one can easily produce the right processes. But sometimes the gap between our propositional knowledge and our experiential knowledge is precisely what prevents us from doing what needs to be done. And maybe in that limited sense, Plato was on to something. Sometimes we just need to see how something's done. We need to imitate something or someone. We need a model. When Paul wrote his letters, he typically included certain customary final remarks, but he often does this in a way that holds up certain individuals. He doesn't do this, let me suggest, to massage their egos. He does this to set them as examples worth imitating for the Christians to whom he's writing. We Christians need models of gospel faithfulness to follow. We need models. Of gospel faithfulness to follow. While the details here are scattered a bit in this passage, we'll follow the logic of the passage as it works through personal updates, personal greetings, final instructions, and the closing. Verses 7 through 9 of this passage discuss some personal updates that will be coming to the Colossian Christians. It's interesting, to me at least, that, that Paul didn't include many personal details in his letters themselves. When we write letters or emails, well, we don't do that a whole lot anymore, but when we do, they're either super formal, like cover letters, or they're super personal. But for Paul, his letters were about teaching, edifying, encouraging, exhortation. He left the personal stuff to his personal representatives. He was much more interested in the gospel, the evangel, than his ego. But it's important. He clearly loved many Christians in the area, and they loved him. What's more, Paul was in jail. This wasn't particularly germane to what Paul had to teach them, but but without a doubt, the Colossians would have had questions. How is he faring? Is he eating well? How can we provide for him during this time? And Paul wasn't cold to these facts. Sometimes, especially those in leadership, um, many of us can be this way. Sometimes people hide their needs. They hide their concerns, hide their fears, And they don't open up about what's going on with them. But while we might feel like we're not burdening other people, or we're not whining, we're also denying people who really care about us the opportunity to assist and pray for us. And so he's sending two individuals who will tell the Colossians all about my activities, he says, and everything that has taken place here. So that's the role of Tychicus and Onesimus. They are not mere letter carriers. They are news carriers. They have a very specific goal also. In verse 8, Paul says, you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So let me suggest that Paul gives us a gospel model of personal Christian encouragement. I have little doubt that most of what Tychicus and Onesimus shared when they got to Colossae was not gossip. They probably had some funny stories and anecdotes, no doubt, but Paul's almost single-minded devotion to the propagation of the gospel meant that any stories about how Paul and his fellow workers were doing were also going to be sources of gospel encouragement. It should be a reminder to us of the need to speak with others about what God is doing in our lives. And a reminder that we'd like to be living lives that are a living encouragement to other Christians. But we should turn our attention to the two men mentioned in particular. It, it would be enough if Paul simply mentioned them. The Colossians would know that these two men were his legitimate emissaries. But Paul doesn't leave it at that. He describes their character And in doing so, he sets them up as models to follow. Tychicus is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, while Onesimus is similarly a faithful and beloved brother, who happens to be a Colossian himself. In describing these two men as beloved brothers, Paul is pointing out that they are dear to him and likely to others. A reminder that Christian affection is a noble thing. In calling them faithful, though, Paul is noting something about their character. All Christians are in one sense faithful. They have faith in Jesus. But Paul clearly means more than that, or he would have stopped at the word brother. No, these two men are to be particularly noted for their faithfulness. For Tychicus, it's his role as a minister, which probably shouldn't be understood as a job title, but a generalized commitment to gospel work. We might think that someone who is a minister is already faithful. Maybe. Sometimes. But Tychicus most certainly is. He likely carried out the work of the gospel with care and fastidiousness. For Onesimus, he's faithful as a brother. Brother meant Christian, but it described relationship. He was Paul's brother. If he was particularly faithful in carrying out the role of being a brother, we might imagine he was loyal and encouraging and supportive of Paul. I'll remind you of who Onesimus was also. He was a slave who had apparently run away and become a Christian under Paul's ministry. One reason he was returning to Colossae was to be reunited with his master, Philemon, Philemon. And so the word brother here might be reinforcing something because in Paul's letter to Philemon, he wrote that he hoped Philemon would receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother. Maybe that's part of the reason why Paul didn't call Onesimus a fellow slave or fellow servant like he does Tychicus. He didn't want to burden Onesimus, whom he hoped Philemon would set free with that language. But for Paul and his companion, missionaries like Tychicus, he was happy to use the word slave, or perhaps bondservant in some of the older translations. Though they were free in the eyes of the world, in their loyalty and devotion to Christ, they were happy to be known as slaves because they toiled consistently. Not for their own glory, but for the glory of another. That's, that's what a slave does, isn't it? They serve for the riches and benefit and glory of a master. Paul knew this better than any. For him to include Tychicus in this comment, he's putting him forward as a model of gospel devotion. Not someone who slaves and toils for an earthly master, but for Jesus Christ himself. We need models like these in our lives. At one point, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians to follow me as I follow Christ. That wasn't an egotistical statement. It was a recognition that human beings need face-to-face models. By all means, follow Christ. But if you want an example of what faithfulness looks like, look at Tychicus. Look at Onesimus. Who do you have as examples of faithfulness and gospel devotion in your own life? Who is sharing the gospel? Who is sacrificing their own priorities for others? Who is uniquely dedicated to their Christian calling? Maybe they don't do the things the way you would do them. Fair enough. But they must be doing something right for you to take note of their faithfulness. Maybe there would be value in following their uncomfortable example. Maybe even especially if their personality and likes and interests are very different than yours. Because maybe those differences are very very much a part of what makes them faithful. Find those sorts of models and imitate them. There's probably someone in your church who's worthy of imitation. But if not, Read biographies of faithful men and women of old. Read about Jonathan Edwards or John Calvin, Martin Luther or Martin Lloyd-Jones, Augustine or Anselm, Elizabeth Elliot or Lottie Moon. God has given us people worth imitating. In the next several verses, Paul turns to some greetings. We could, we could divide this section as verses 10 through 14, or we could divide it as verses 10 through 15, but we'll go with verse 15 as the cutoff. It's a series of greetings between people who can't communicate directly. Mostly they are greetings from those in contact with Paul, who are not writing a letter that's going to travel the very old-fashioned way from city to city. And it's a reminder for us of the real benefit of continued personal connection. Now, I'm bad at this. I'm not sure there's a right or wrong amount. We're all a little bit different, but I'm probably on the low end on this. Uh, I'm reminded every so often of people I've lost contact with, people I really liked and enjoyed, but I let them go. I'm I'm a person who really focuses on a, a few relationships that are present, relationships require a lot of emotional energy for me so i have very few that span long periods of time and distance and i've always felt personally networking to be a little hollow a little a little phony and i don't hold that against you guys who are good at it in fact i admire you i'm in awe of you it just feels weird to me so so that's my hang up but but these individuals wanted to stay in touch with the colossians and maybe just as importantly, Paul wanted to give them the opportunity to stay in touch. Paper wasn't just something you casually threw out back then. Give, giving them space for their own greetings was not just about running another sheet off the printer tray. So there was a cost associated with giving them some space. And so Paul is he's promoting these guys Perhaps they would have an opportunity to minister in Colossae in the future, or would need the Colossians' support in the future, and so they're staying in touch. This is a sort of gospel networking that is valuable and and frankly biblical. We should help godly men and women to make and maintain contacts needed to promote the work of the gospel. Who can you introduce that a missionary you support... Who can, who can you introduce a missionary that you support to? Who can you connect with one of your pastors for the sake of the gospel? Now, there's six individuals that come in for mention here, three Jews, three Gentiles. The Jewish believers are Aristarchus, Mark, and Justus. Paul mentions that they are his only fellow Jews with him. We might remember that Paul, because of his association with Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, faced a lot of opposition from members of his own nation, his own ethnicity. And that had to be very hard on him. We, we've already mentioned the, the value of, of having relationships with people who are different than you. That might be, even be the way that they express their faithfulness that you need to grow in. But that being said, we all value having people in our lives who are like us, too. And there's nothing wrong with that. When it becomes sinful is when we make likeness the implicit or explicit motivation for association. When we are intentionally seeking people like me is the only people I really enjoy or am comfortable dealing with, explicitly or implicitly. Paul valued having the support and friendship of fellow Jews who probably were raised on the same hymns and maybe could speak knowledgeably about the scriptures together, who perhaps enjoyed some of the same foods. There's value in it, and it was a comfort to him. Now, the fact that Paul surrounded himself with Gentiles who were not like him, again, is a reminder that the Christian calling is not one of homogeneity, not one of like attracts like. But friendships based on similarities are not wicked. They are important. But more than that, mutual comfort is important. These three are singled out for there being a comfort to Paul. How have you been a comfort to those in your church who are struggling, who are going through difficulties? And if you're struggling, do you let people in so they can comfort you? We were brought into churches for many reasons, but among them, to comfort and support one another. Among the Gentiles with Paul are Luke, the beloved physician, about whom we could say similar things to Tychicus and Onesimus. Last year, of course, we went through Luke's gospel, and this is one of the places we get mentioned of the author himself. There's also Damas, about whom we know so very little, except that he appears later in Paul's life as one who apparently abandons the ministry, at least for a time, and that causes Paul no little grief. But Epaphras, Epaphras, Paul wants them to know, is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God and has worked hard for you. Now, part of the accolades here might be because Epaphras is one of them. He's a Colossian. They may have been concerned about their friend, and they may have known him better than any of these other uh, individuals who come in for mention. And then we go back to chapter 1, and this letter tells us that Epaphras was apparently the one who first preached the gospel to the Colossians. So Paul could have said many things about Epaphras, this man who evidently the Colossians would have been very concerned about. But he chooses to go on at length about something they didn't know about him, his habits while he was away from Colossae. And there's two things he says of Epaphras that are worth our attention. First, he struggles in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. Now, last week, we talked about how prayer was something we needed to persevere in, fight through, endure. Well, Epaphras was an example of a guy who did just that. The Colossians couldn't read the first part of chapter one and say no one prays like that because Paul says Epaphras prays like that and what's more he was praying for them and notice the content of the prayer like last week it's a gospel-minded prayer he doesn't pray for their health he doesn't pray for their safety he doesn't pray for their businesses or their children and not that those things were wrong He prays that they would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. It's a slightly awkward phrase, but the meaning is pretty plain. He wants them to grow in Christian maturity, to full Christian maturity, and to be so confident in their understanding of everything that God desires of them. Do we pray like that? Do we pray for the spiritual maturity and the spiritual understanding of fellow believers? What a rich prayer that keeps on giving. They say, give a man a fish and feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. Well, maybe a biblical equivalent of that is pray for a man's healing, and should God answer, he'll have a blessed day. Pray for a man's spiritual maturity, and should God answer, he will have a blessed every day and for eternity. So that's a worthwhile prayer. But he also worked hard for them. That's the second thing he says about Epaphras. It's hard to know what that entails, but it's it's interesting that the word that Paul uses for work here is a rare word that typically indicates painful work. Now, whether that work was spiritually or emotionally painful or physically painful, we don't know. But it indicates that Epaphras was not just very busy. He was hurt. And he was voluntarily hurt for their good do we labor in that way for fellow Christians do we put ourselves on the line in such a way that we take our lumps for one another are we willing to be hurt are we willing to be broken are we willing to endure painful labor Certainly we are for our careers. Certainly we are to get through school. Certainly we are for a lot of things. Are we willing to do that for the spiritual benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ? That was Epaphras' model. The final greetings here are of a slightly different character. They're greetings that Paul wants the Colossians to pass on from him. To the Laodiceans and to Nympha. Laodicea was a nearby city and it's likely the Colossians and the Laodiceans were close, not just in distance but in culture and trade and economics and all sorts of manner of life. It's worth dwelling on Nympha. It's a, it's a testimony to how important women were in the early Christian church that we see them so often funding and supporting the work of the gospel ministry. We don't know Nympha's story. We only know she had a house that house served as a place where christians could assemble as a church we all have our ways to serve and support the work of the gospel it often comes at great personal expense sometimes space is what we have to give but we can all stand to benefit from the model of nympha who's willing to sacrifice her own goods for the sake of the gospel Well, second to last, penultimately, Paul moves to some final instructions. He wants them to read this letter. That's an important point, actually, because this was not a private letter. The language here implies, as would have been common in the ancient world, that one person would read the letter aloud for the whole church to hear. There's no photocopier. And even if they left it out for others to read, not everyone necessarily would have been literate enough to read the letter. But the Word of God was for everyone. This was for everyone's encouragement. And they were also a letter swap with the church in Laodicea. We don't have that letter. Maybe it was short and said nothing particularly new. But maybe it reinforced some of the things in this letter. And for historical purposes, no one thought to keep it. We we just don't know. The churches didn't seem to think it was significant enough to distribute it widely. But to Paul, the letters were good for both churches. So, swap letters. Share in each other's encouragement. Don't keep your Christian encouragement to yourself. But then also do Archippus. See that you fulfill the ministry that you received in the Lord. We know basically nothing about Archippus, except that Paul asks Philemon to personally greet him, and that's about it. But there's two things we can say about Archippus. He has been given a service or ministry in the Lord. Meaning in the sphere of Jesus' gospel work. Second, he hadn't completed it So we can presume he needed some pushing some challenging in this regard There's no reason to assume that Archippus wasn't going to complete the work but we all need encouragement and challenging and exhortation from time to time and What more important area to push one another in than in our faithful commitment to gospel ministry? so challenge each other with love and and support and trust to do what we said we were going to do, to do what we have been called to do for Jesus. Challenging one another for the sake of the gospel is a good model. Finally, at the end of this letter, Paul says goodbye. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The first statement is his Autograph. It's how he authenticated his letters. It's probable this last verse, and perhaps even that one sentence, was, was all that Paul wrote with his own hand. Most ancient letters would have been dictated and written down uh, by a secretary. And, and, and Paul's letters were no exception. His request that they remember his chains is, is probably not a reminder that he is suffering it's not asking them to feel sorry for him. That wouldn't fit the other things he's said about his imprisonment. He didn't particularly feel sorry about his imprisonment himself. It's probably a request for support. And based on this book and elsewhere, the primary support that Paul wanted was prayer. Pray for the gospel ministry. Even though it appears to be shackled and behind bars, pray The gospel ministry. When you think of me, and you think of me being in prison, he says, go to God in prayer. It's also possible it was a request for material assistance. It was the Colossians' turn to support the work of the gospel. First in prayer, second in aid. But the big idea on that is that we, too, should be eager to support the gospel work. What might that look like? Well, of course, first and foremost, are you praying for the gospel work of your local church? Secondly, are you praying for the gospel work of your fellow brothers and sisters, first in your church and then in concentric rings around that in your life? Third, are you praying for the gospel work beyond your community, especially in places where it has not been made known? But then how do you support that work How do you provide physical aid to that work? That can be done uh, by taking a mission trip, but the easiest way for most of us is financially. Do you contribute significantly and sacrificially to the ministry of your local church? Do you commit significantly and sacrificially to the cause of gospel faithfulness beyond your local church? Well, the Colossians knew they had that responsibility. And Paul can only simply say, Remember my chains. It was enough. Finally, Paul closes with, Grace be with you. It sounds like a nice salutation to a letter, but for Paul, it would have been impossible to remove grace from the riches of the grace of Christ showered on us at the cross. He died for sinners. So that they could be liberated from guilt and shame and death by trusting in him. They could have eternal life forever in God, no matter what they had done in the past. Grace beyond measure. And it is a grace that keeps on giving. It's a grace that Christian needs, not once, but daily to live lives pleasing before God to kill sin, to resist falling away, to reject false teachings, to strive to live in harmony with one another, and to follow the models God has given them in Christ. Well, may we live in such grace too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, draw our attention to the models that you have placed before us. The gospel encouragement that we have in the model of Paul, the model of the men and women of this passage, those who are in our church, those who have lived throughout the ages, we have such a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. May we join that cloud by imitating them and then becoming worthy of imitation for others.